We are continuing our journey through the story all this year. The story looks like this. 31 chapter narrative of the Bible, putting the story of the whole Bible in book form. And if you haven't been with us in a while, or maybe this is your first time here, we entered into the season of Lent, looking towards Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Resurrection Sunday. We entered into this season of Lent by engaging the book of Judges. That's where we, where we last left off in the story. And what happened in Judges' brief recap is after the passing of Joshua, Israel was governed by a series of judges, these regional, political, and military chieftains. For nearly three centuries, as John, Pastor John, preached two weeks ago, the people of Israel were caught in this vicious cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. And if you remember that sermon, or if you remember reading the book of Judges, things in that book get progressively go from bad to worse. Except for the brief and bright seed of hope that's planted in the story of Ruth that follows the book of Judges, which Lee preached on last week. Except for that one brief shining moment, the 12 tribes of Israel during this period have known nothing but chaos, violence, death, and even civil war. And that brings us to where we are today, chapter 10 in the story in the Bible, the book of 1 Samuel. We move from the time of the judges to the beginning of Israel's monarchy. And as we go through these next few chapters in the story and in the Bible, the central question for us during this Lenten season is what keeps us from being the people God calls us to be? What keeps us from being the people God calls us to be? And that's something we're going to try to answer through the word of God today. When we last left the Israelites, like I said, things were pretty bad. Well, as we catch up now, things haven't gotten much better. When you enter into chapter 10 of the story for the beginning of 1 Samuel, Israel is still a loose confederation of tribes. Their one point of unity at this point is a common enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines were a seafaring people. They're a rising world power. They have numbers, and they also have a serious technological advantage, a monopoly on iron technology. In fact, so great was their advantage, the Bible actually records at one point the Israelites had to go down to the Philistines just to get their tools sharpened. And the Philistines are continually attacking Israel. They are aggressively seeking to take back territory from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to Jericho. So in the midst of a loose confederation, this is the one point of unity. The problem is internally Israel is still corrupt. Apathy continues to spread. In fact, one of the first people that we meet in this chapter of the story is a priest named Eli. And at first, Eli looks to be fulfilling his role as a priest, but we soon find out he's having trouble at home. He's been having it, in fact, for a while. His two sons, Hopni and Phineas, also priests, are taking advantage of their office. They are misappropriating the offerings that are supposed to go to the Lord. They're even guilty of sexual abuse within the community. The Bible doesn't pull any punches about how bad it is for Eli and his sons. He states plainly, Eli's sons were evil men. But more than this, the scriptures tell us why they acted this way. It's this simple. They did not know the Lord. Now what's important to understand as we enter into 1 Samuel is this isn't just about three guys, Eli, Hopni, and Phineas. This is Three, these are three individuals, but this is reflective. Their situation is reflective. It's mirroring the broader state of the people of Israel. 
And that this is true is underscored when the Bible goes on to tell us, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. You see, it's not just Eli, Hopney, and Phineas. The Israelites, as a people, have forgotten the Lord. And the spiritual emptiness, this moral barrenness of the people is further reflected in the next person we're introduced to in 1 Samuel. This spiritual barrenness, this moral um, emptiness is reflected in the infertility of a particular woman named Hannah. Hannah, who is unable to bear a child. However, Hannah, unlike the rest of her people, Hannah, in many ways like Ruth, who we heard about last week, Hannah knows where her help comes from. Hannah remembers God. Others have forgotten, but Hannah remembers God, and she publicly cries out to him in her need. And we're quickly told that Hannah's rare display of faith does not go unanswered. She becomes pregnant, having been barren for many years. She becomes pregnant with a son. And she names her firstborn son Samuel, which means heard of God, coming from that Hebrew word for hear, Shema. It's the first of many children she will bear. However, in this case, with her firstborn son, out of gratitude and worship, Hannah gives Samuel back to the Lord. Once he is weaned, she dedicates him to the Lord's service. She offers Samuel to Eli, the priest, as an assistant to minister under him. And this is where the title for these next two books of the Bible come from, First and Second Samuel, pointing back to this child, to this boy named Samuel, Samuel who became known. Unlike the rest of the priests, he became known for hearing and listening to God. Samuel, the boy who grows up in the presence of the Lord and becomes the man who replaces Eli, who becomes the last of Israel's judges and her first true prophet. And so as we go further into the story, Israel experiences yet another embarrassing defeat at the hands of the Philistines. In fact, it's so bad they actually lose the Ark of the Covenant for a spell. But Samuel has now been, has grown up and he becomes a leader and he leads the people in finally bringing the Philistines under Israel's control. Things are looking good. First Samuel starts out pretty dark and starts to brighten up pretty quick. All is well, but we remember the cycle, don't we? We know it's not going to last. Samuel, in fact, we're told, is starting to get older. And his sons, who will follow him, seem more interested in making money than leading well. The people don't want any of that. The people are tired of the cycle they've found themselves in. And the people have an idea. They think they know the answer to all their problems. And that brings us to our reading this morning, getting us into the core of this part of the story. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Read along with me, starting in verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abjah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. 
Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's continue on to see where this goes. You see this, this has been something that's been building for a time. The Israelites continue to believe that their problem is they don't have a king, that everything will get better if they just have a king. And so the people want a king. And as despite how Samuel reacts, the Lord provides them with one. And I want to continue on in the story and then I'll reflect back on what we see here. So the people want a king, the Lord provides them one. God directs Samuel to anoint the son of a VIP, a very important person. God directs Samuel to anoint a son named Saul. And Saul is going to be Israel's first earthly monarch. And by all appearances, Saul looks to fit the bill of royalty nicely. He's born of a prominent family, as I just mentioned. He looks good. He's good looking. He's a head taller than all the other Israelites. So the people rejoice when Saul is anointed. Long live the king. Anointed for service, filled with the Spirit of God, King Saul, his rule begins well. He rallies the army of Israel, and they win some significant battles. In fact, after one particular battle against the Ammonites, Saul rededicates the nation to God. Good stuff. Doesn't take long. Soon, Saul lets his crown and his title get the better of him. Although he may be taller than everyone else, Saul repeatedly reveals he is short on character. Rather than relying on the spirit of the Lord which fills him, Saul begins to make some really bad decisions. And these are more than honest mistakes. As I'll outline for you, they become increasing acts of disobedience. The first thing that happens is Saul loses his patience. They're in preparation to fight the, Israelite, to fight the, the Philistines in battle. And as they're prepared to fight the Philistines in battle, Saul is instructed to wait with his army for seven days. Wait for seven days when you get camped, ready for battle. Wait seven days until Samuel arrives on the seventh day to offer the sacrifice to provide the offering for the battle. Well, six days pass. And at the sixth day mark, soldiers start to desert left and right. And so as the seventh day dawns, King Saul is freaking out. And King Saul decides in that moment to cut corners and to take matters into his own hands. He performs the sacrifice himself, something only the priest was supposed to do. As he finishes, Samuel shows up as promised and asks Saul to explain himself. Now this is significant. In that moment when Samuel asks Saul to explain himself, Saul, instead of acknowledging what he did and repenting, he tries to turn it around and blame Samuel. Listen to this. Saul says, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgah, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Saul says, well, you know, really, this is actually kind of your fault, because you didn't get here sooner. But Samuel came, just like he said, on the seventh day. There are other things that begin to start to happen that demonstrate some weaknesses in Saul's leadership, but where it all completely unravels is when he makes a foolish decision to disobey the Lord a second time. Before Israel goes into battle against the Amalekites, Saul once again is given clear instructions. And the instructions are these. Take no prisoners, take no spoils. No one in Israel is to profit from this encounter. But once again, Saul can't resist making some changes in his orders. 
Saul spares the life of the Amalekite king. He spares the life of the Amalekite king to parade him around as a trophy of his conquest. And to boot, Saul also plunders the king's flocks and retains the best of the spoils. And one more time, Samuel comes to confront Saul. But this time, this, is diff- this time it's different. King Saul tries to get out ahead of it. Last time, Samuel got the first word, so this time Saul wants to get the first word. So he sees Samuel coming, he knows he's in trouble, and Saul gets all Eddie Haskell. And if you don't know what I mean by Eddie Haskell, leave it to Beaver, right? If you don't know leave it to Beaver, leave it to Beaver. Eddie Haskell was this kid who always got into trouble. He knew he did wrong, but he always tried to get away with it by acting all innocent. So Samuel's coming, but before he can say a thing, Saul says, the Lord bless you. He lays it on thick. The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instruction. This is, this is, this is a sadly humorous part of, for Samuel, but I love it. So, you know, Samuel's coming. Saul tries to get out ahead of it. He's like, hey, God is good, man. I did what the Lord instructed. But Samuel doesn't miss a beat. Samuel's old, I told you that, but he's not that old. His hearing is still pretty good. So in the midst of Saul saying, hey, all good, I did exactly what the Lord said. Listen to what Samuel says. If you carried out the Lord's instructions, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What's this lowing of cattle I hear? And you can imagine in that moment Saul going, oh, those sheep? Oh, oh, those cows? Oh, Um, And once again, in that moment, Saul tries to deflect and blame others. The soldiers, they brought them from the Amalekites. It wasn't my idea. And then Saul goes on to add, well, we spared the best of the sheep and the cattle so so we could make a sacrifice to God. Yeah, yeah, that's what we were going to do, so we could make a sacrifice to God. But Samuel will will have none of it. Once again, Samuel asks Saul to own his wrongdoing. But this is crazy. Saul just keeps on insisting he accomplished the mission. So he did what the Lord asked. Hey, I did what God told me to do. It kind of reminds me, how many of you had your parents always telling you to clean your room? Right? Raise your hand if you were one of the, not the neat freak. You know, you didn't clean your room. And how many of you, let's be honest, when your parents told you to clean your room, you went behind your closed door and you spent most of your time trying to figure out how you could not clean your room, Right? And you, this is, if you're like me, this is what you did. You took your stuff, you shoved it in the closet, you stuffed it under the bed, you called your parents, all right, mom and dad, and they came in and they're like, this room isn't clean. You're like, what are you talking about? Look, there's nothing on the floor. It's not all over the place. It's all organized. I cleaned my room. And they open up your closet and they pull out your bed and you're like, this is not cleaning your room. And rather than owning it, you're like, I just don't understand what you're so upset about. I clean, <laughs> I clean my room. I mean, <laughs> this is what Saul is doing. This is what Saul is doing. But remember, this is a repeated thing. And now it's reached its breaking point. Saul's pride over his disobedience, his unwillingness to acknowledge his impatience and his foolishness in taking things into his own hands, it forfeits him the crown. Samuel in that moment declares, the office of king is taken from Saul and will be given to another. And God, right then, begins to act behind the scenes to replace Saul. The Lord will eventually lead Samuel to find David, the youngest son of Jesse. But that's next week's chapter from the story. For now, let's stop and reflect on what we have. Let's reflect on Saul's disobedience in terms of our own walk with the Lord. But before we do that, one thing I really want to tease out for you is this part of the story isn't just about Saul. 
This is about all Israel. Something that I want us to see as we look at Saul and as we look at Israel, I want us to see this parallel, is leaders often reflect our orientation and attitude as a people. We get the leaders we deserve. We get the leaders who reflect, who mirror our own attitudes and orientation. Saul in this story is not a man in isolation. Saul is king. And as king, he is representative of the larger flaws of Israel as a whole. His two acts of disobedience, I will show you, parallel Israel's. And these are also two things that can get in the way of our relationship, our answering the call our Father places on our lives as followers of Christ. So what are these two aspects of disobedience? They are impatience and foolishness. Impatience and foolishness. Let's talk first about impatience. Impatience. All Saul had to do, think about this, all Saul had to do was wait for God to do his thing. And what is God's thing? What did he have to wait for God to do? To deliver his people. And this is nothing new, right? Because God has been delivering his people for generations. God had brought the victory, many of them, as I told you, already within Saul's reign. But here in this moment, Saul is too impatient to trust God's timetable. Even though Saul has experienced God coming through, Saul is not able to wait. He couldn't wait even a few more hours. It's the seventh day. And Saul's impatience leads him to try and take control. Control of a situation the Lord already had well in hand. Impatience. But it's not just Saul. All the people of Israel had to do was wait upon the Lord for leadership, right? But the Israelites grew weary of their up and down fortunes with the judges and decided to take matters into their own hands. They sought a king. Now, you might understand Saul, but you might think I'm being a little unfair to Israel as a whole because think about it. With the undulating fortunes of Israel, the fact that they're facing attack from various peoples, dealing with all those internal conflicts that I mentioned, having an earthly king sounds like a natural, a logical progression for a would-be up-and-coming nation in the world. But what we forget, what Israel forgot, is this was not the story God had in mind for his people Going all the way back to his initial covenant promise, the Lord sought for Israel to be distinctive, to engage the world differently from the surrounding nations. But Israel got tired of standing apart. Israel grew impatient with waiting and decided they wanted to be like the emperor empires around them. The Lord's timing, whatever he was up to, didn't matter to them anymore. So think about this. Let this sink in. So the people to whom God had proven faithful over and over again, the people to whom God had proven faithful over and over again demanded, demanded to be given a king now. In their impatience to conform and be like everyone else, Israel distorted her ability to be God's people, to be a light to and for the rest of the world. And the implications of this impatience will play out far beyond 1 Samuel. Israel will get her share of kings 
And most of those kings that will come will be just like Samuel warns them to expect. They will be kings who will enslave their sons for war, who will take their daughters, who will steal their land, who will burden them with taxes, and will use all they have for their own selfish purposes. If you're not familiar yet, buckle up as we continue on for several chapters in the story because the ratio of bad kings versus good kings in Israel's history, it isn't even close. Impatience. Saul, Israel. Impatience. Us. How is our patience when it comes to our relationship with our Father? How's your patience? Let's, let's tell the truth in church, right? Right? Anybody here ever got tired of waiting for the Lord's timing in terms of a prayer or a promise and ended up taking matters in your own hands? I know I have. How'd that turn out? Sometimes, by God's grace, it works out. Sometimes, even when we take matters in our own hands, by God's grace, it works out. But sometimes, it doesn't. But every time, every time I've taken matters into my own hands, every time, at least for me, I've looked back and realized when I've ignored the leading, the timing of the Holy Spirit, every time I've gotten in the way, I've become the obstacle to what the Lord was trying to do. Beloved, we're told in the Bible that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. We are not on our own a patient people. You don't need the Bible to tell you that. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. The question is, how many of us are squelching the Spirit from growing that fruit in our life? The Lord can and often does work despite me, but my impatience always creates more problems than it solves. We don't like to wait. I get it. We're always running around in such a darn hurry to get where we want to be, but how much do we miss along the way? And how many times do we end, end up flat on our face? How many times do we end up battered and bruised getting to where the Lord is taking us just because we have to be in control? Impatience. But there's also foolishness. Foolishness. I don't know if you caught this at all in your reading of the story or in my kind of giving you the quick summary, but do you notice that Saul makes most of his decisions without asking the Lord? Saul makes most of his decisions without asking God. It's odd, isn't it? Strange. I mean, here's this guy, and that's all Saul is. He's a guy. He's a guy who gets picked out of the crowd and raised up as a leader by God. And at the start, as I told you, Saul has the good sense to know it's not about him. It's nothing he's done to gain his crown. And as I said, initially Saul relies on the spirit of the Lord that he has given in order to rally the divided tribes of Israel and unite them. At the start, he recognizes and Saul gives the glory to God. But then he forgets. He forgets, or is it that Saul assumes? Saul assumes he's the king. He's the king. And therefore, Whatever he decides, whatever he does, is all good. Because after all, he is the Lord's anointed. Does Saul forget? Or does he assume? Whichever it is, Saul starts making bad decisions because he foolishly forgets the power behind his throne. The greatest wisdom and discernment he could possibly want a resource. He doesn't ask. 
He doesn't ask, and therefore he doesn't have. Saul gets into trouble because he foolishly assumes wearing the crown and therefore being answerable to no one under him meant he wasn't answerable to the one who made him king. Rather than being God's servant, we watch as Saul quickly becomes his own man, willing to do things his own way, believing he had the ultimate authority to decide what is right and what is wrong, rather than to hear the word of the Lord spoke to him through Samuel. Do you notice how many times Saul reframes Samuel's rebukes and tells him, I'm not wrong. No, no, God's got it wrong. I waited. I did what I was supposed to do. You see what happens here? Saul gets to the point, think about this, where he doesn't ask God how it is. Saul gets to the point where he tells God how it is. And again, it's not just Saul. Israel is no different in her posture before the Lord. Remember the end of the book of Judges, the last line as it leads into 1 Samuel? No one is looking to God, we're told. No one is looking to God. Why? What are we told at the end of the book of Judges? No one's looking to God because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. In the aftermath of all the chaos and the suffering of the period of Judges, Think about this. The people don't ask God what the solution is to the vicious cycle they find themselves in. The people never stop and get on their knees and pray and say, Lord, why is this happening? Why are we stuck here? Why do we keep spinning round and round like this? The people never ask God. Instead, you know it, the Israelites tell God what the answer is. They become convinced that all their difficulties up till now were because they lacked a common ruler to unite them. They thought that all their future problems would be solved if they just had a king like everybody else. But it's foolishness. Why is it foolishness? Samuel gets it. Samuel understands. It's foolishness because what the people failed to see is they already had a king. They didn't need leadership because they already had it. The people's true king was the Lord himself, protecting them, delivering them, guiding them all the way from Egypt through the period of the judges to where they are now. However, like Saul, the people of Israel failed to remember. Or did they simply choose to forget? You heard it when I read it. The cry of our father in the wake of the people's foolish grumbling for a king. Listen to what God says. You are not the ones they turn their backs on. I am the one they don't want as their king. They are just doing as they have always done. Beloved, it's not just about Saul or Israel. Beloved, I'm asking us today a tough question, but an honest one. In our lives and our living, how often are we just as foolish? In our lives and in our living, how often are we just as foolish? How little does it take for us to throw off the rule of our rightful king and to seek another king, someone or something else in which to find our provision, our security, and our deliverance? Whether we overlook or just plain ignore the Lord's authority in our lives, isn't the king we set up in his place, the, the, whatever we set up to rule over us, isn't it the will of our own minds? Isn't it the will of our own thoughts and desires? I mean, you strip it down, me, myself, and I is the king we demand. Me, myself, and I is the king we want to follow and serve. Because when we're in charge, we can do what we want, when we want, however we please. It's good to be the king, right? It's good to be the king. Because when we're the king, there are no rules to follow. 
save that of doing what pleases us. This is the king we want because this king allows us to be just like everybody else. Problem is, is when everyone thinks they're the king too, somebody's kingdom has to fall. I mean, if we all think we're the king, then we're all vying for the crown. We're all grasping for territory, aren't we? Rather than working together and serving each other. Somewhere along the way, eventually, sometimes it's early, sometimes it's late for us, we face the consequences of this kind of foolishness. We face the consequences of the foolishness of self-rule. We all reach that breaking point where the king of our minds, our thoughts, and our desires leaves us unsatisfied and unfulfilled. And that can be the moment when we turn to our one true king. It can be the moment when we turn. But again, look at Saul and the people of Israel. They became so removed from God, they didn't even think to ask to seek the Lord's perspective and direction. I don't know if you've ever thought this way about your relationship with God, specifically with Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, our comforter and our counselor. Hear this, people. We have access, you have access to the authority and power, authority and power, to the truth and wisdom, to the grace and love of the king of kings. You have access to the authority, power, truth, wisdom, grace, and love of the one who called this universe into being, who redeemed it, who redeemed us from destruction, who is even now making all things new. How are we not tapping into that? How are we not paying attention, listening to, and learning from him and from his word? Ask yourself, do you ask God or do you tell God? Do you listen and say, God, what do you have to say? Lord, what's your wisdom? Lord, you're the one who created me. Lord, you're the one who created this world. Which way shall I go? What shall I do? Or do we say, Lord, this is the answer. This is what I want. This is what you will do. Foolishness. Ask yourself, church, how much better would our social and cultural witness be How much better would our social and cultural witness be if we just begin, just start by asking, Lord, what would you have me do? Rather than assuming we're doing what the Lord wants. The invitation, this is an invitation. The invitation is for us to get off the treadmill of being like everyone else and to become the new creations in Christ we are empowered to be. The challenge is asking the Lord and listening carefully to the answer to this question. Lord, what is your plan for my life? Lord, what is your plan for my family? Lord, what is your plan for this church? Lord, what is your plan for this community? Every day, asking that question and listening to the answer. See, the thing is, if we shift our orientation in this way, if we begin by asking rather than telling, here's what may happen. We may have some conclusions that are given to us. We may reach some conclusions that require us to make major adjustments. Some of us may realize there are things we're not doing. There are things we're not yielding. There are things we're not paying attention to that we need to that we need to shift our priorities, that we need to shift our values. Some of us may discern that 
that, that God is requiring us to keep on doing what we're now doing. And to realize that that's what God planned all along. And sometimes that's the hardest one, right? Because oftentimes we say, God, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And if you actually listen, God says, I hear you, but this is where I want you. This is what I want you to do. And then like Saul and Israel were like, you know what? I got a better idea. I got a different plan. I'm going to just adjust things just a little bit to make this a little different. And God says, uh, uh, that's not what I, that, 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 that's not, I did not. And we're like, hey, I'm doing exactly what you said. I just tweaked it a little. Discernment, and this is why many of us struggle with it, discernment is never a straightforward process. Discernment is never a straightforward process. Discernment takes the investment of time. Discernment takes the investment of self. Discernment takes the investment of relationship with this God. But here's the thing. If you are seeking wisdom in your life, if you are truly saying, Lord, what do you want me to be about? What have you given me this life for? The only way that wisdom comes is by asking and listening to our king. The only way that wisdom comes is by asking and listening to our king. What we see in Saul and Israel is they lived a different way. They lived out of their insecurities. Rather than listening, asking and listening to their king, they dealt with their insecurities by asking and listening to what everybody else was doing. Rather than holding fast in their identity as the Lord's anointed, holding fast in their identity, we are the Lord's anointed. Rather than relying on the provision and guidance of their king, they let their impatience and their foolishness get in the way. And really, their impatience and their foolishness were symptoms of a larger problem. Their, their patient, impatience and foolishness were symptoms of the problem that gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord. And it comes down to one word, pride. Their pride got the better of them. They were interested in how they looked rather than how they actually related to God. Israel wanted to look like all the other nations rather than be God's beacon to the world. Saul sought to look like a king rather than act like God's servant and reflect the kingdom he represented. But what we can see, and Hannah and Samuel are a good contrast, by the way, to Saul and Israel. When it comes to being God's people, when it comes to being servants of the king, it's not how you look, it's how you live. It's not how you look, it's how you live. And this theme is best represented by a key line in this part of the story. It's a word that comes from Samuel at the height of Saul's disobedience. You know that moment, that Eddie Haskell moment when Saul's trying to get out ahead of it and he's just not owning his stuff and he's like, oh, I did do exactly what the Lord said. I, I did it. Saul, Saul gets this great line given to him by Samuel. Samuel just finally says when he's done, he says, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Let me unpack this for you. In the midst of his denials, his unwillingness to own his stuff by pointing to the sacrifices he's making for God, Samuel confronts Saul with this truth. Just because you look like you're following God doesn't mean you actually are. And Samuel will not be the last prophet to try to point this out, not just to Saul, but to Israel. Israel's problem, we all know this, right? Can we just say this out loud? Israel's problem at this point isn't that she needs a king. Israel's problem is she actually needs to follow the king she has. Rather than pay lip service to him. Rather than go through the motions. Beloved, it's not just Israel and Saul. We need to think about this. We need to hear this. Because 
It's not about how we look in terms of our relationship to the Lord. It's about how we live in our relationship with the Lord. Like Saul, like Israel, we can turn. We do this. We can turn our sacrifices for God into a kind of debt that God owes us. A demand we make of the Lord like Israel. Or we can take the the sacrifices that we make for God into a justification like Saul for doing whatever we feel like rather than what the Lord specifically tells us to do. And we do this anytime, every time we treat our relationship with God like a religion. And what I mean by that is anytime we treat our relationship with God like boxes we have to check off to make God happy so we can get what we want. Or boxes we have to check off to make amends for doing something we're not supposed to do. Go to church on Sunday, check. Give, put some money in the offering plate when it comes by, check. Do something good for someone else every now and then, check. Is that how you're living? Check, check, check. The strongest indication of a person's faith is not what one does for God. The strongest indication of a person's faith is how one lives with God. The strongest indication of a person's faith is not what they do for God on Sunday morning or any other day of the week. The strongest indication of a person's faith is how they live with God every moment of their lives. Obedience is better than sacrifice because obedience is letting God be God. Letting God be at the center of our lives rather than our focus for once a week or once a day in the morning. Because you see, obedience, if you really think about it, obedience is the response of someone who is in a relationship of trust and dependence. Obedience is is the response of someone who's in a relationship of trust and dependence. So I don't want you to mishear me this morning because this is important, but I want you to understand why it's important. Our enthusiasm and our excellence in worshiping through song, prayer, and sacrament, all that enthusiasm and excellence that we bring, it's all well and good. But if that excellence and enthusiasm in worship isn't supported by our actions outside of this space and this time, if it isn't being supported outside of our morning devotional with coffee in the morning, then we are being, in fact, false and manipulative in our relationship with God. We are being false and manipulative. We're thinking we control God. Here's the thing. This isn't the end-all, be-all of worship. Walking the talk is true worship. Because you see, more than wanting us to look like one of his children, more than wanting us to look like one of his followers, our Father calls us to be his ambassadors, his representatives in how we conduct ourselves, reflect the standards and practices of his love, his grace and truth in our interaction and treatment of others. So the question we're left with this morning, and it, it hits hard, is are you looking like a Christian? or living like a follower of Christ? Do you look like a Christian? Or do you live like someone who follows Jesus? In our impatience and in our foolishness before God, are we more focused on keeping up appearances? You know what I'm talking about, right? Looking good, it's fine. Or are we being honest? If with no one else, are we being honest with ourselves about how things truly are? about where we really stand in our relationship with God. See, we we can be blinded. 
it's, it happens. We can be blinded by what we want. We can be blinded by what we want rather than guided by what God tells us we need. We're all tempted. No one's immune. We're all tempted to heed the voice of the crowd, right? It's easier to just listen to what everybody else is doing rather than to listen for the voice of the Lord. And we all have those moments. (laughs) We do. Where we experience success, right? Success. And then we forget and overlook the Lord's provision and presume it's all about us. Are you looking like a Christian? Are you keeping up appearances? Or are you living like a follower of Christ? Are you being honest about this relationship that you have with this God? Who this God is, who you are, what he is offering you, and what you are willing to offer to him. There's good news. (laughs) There's always good news. That's why we're here. The good news is even though we might, we do, even though we think we have dethroned the Lord, the good news is our Father always has a way of showing us he's in charge. (laughs) Hear that, man. Our Father always has a way of showing us he's in charge. Our Father may allow us to go our own way, to do our own thing, so we can learn the hard way. Don't miss this. Israel wants a king. They already have a king, but God says, okay, you want a king? You get a king. Go have a king. Have a couple of them. Have many of them. Our Father will let us go our own way and do our own thing so we can learn the hard way. And that might sound like bad parenting. But here's the deal. Our Father may let us go our own way, do our own thing, but he's still always there. Our Father is still always there. You see that here, he will, it will not change. Our Father is still always there, even when he lets us go our own way and do our own thing, he is still there calling us back to him. Calling us to return home to his kingdom, our inheritance of joy, peace, and wholeness, to come back to life the way it was meant to be lived before him and with him. Israel didn't need an earthly king, and neither do we. Beloved, our rulers, elected or otherwise, may serve us, but they will never save us. They will never save us. Israel needed, we need, the king of heaven to come down to earth. And he did in Jesus Christ. And that's the good news in the midst of all of our foolishness and our impatience, in the midst of all of our pride, even in the midst of all of it, the hand of our one true and everlasting king remains extended. Extended toward us to lift us up from this vicious cycle of this torn world and our broken lives. The hand of our one true and everlasting king is reached out toward us. Through the love and grace born of the cross and resurrection, Christ will always be our ruler and our guide. And with him, we know we are well cared for, both in this life and in the life that is yet eternally to come. So wait. Slow down. Ask and listen. But even if you don't, know that he is still there calling us to follow him to live with him, inviting us through his grace, love, and mercy to be heirs of all the gifts he desires to share with the people that he calls his own. So let us, as that hand is extended toward us, as Jesus has already taken hold of us, 
let us continue with joy and expectation to hold on to him. For he is our king. There is no other. Amen.